Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Auditor General's report has pointed out that Hamilton was misled on the cost of the LRT years before it was canceled. Metrolinx knew about it and didn't tell anybody. We'll give you some of the details on that. Ontario has passed a bill that could grant university status to Christian school run by controversial supporter of Premier Doug Ford. NDP education critic Merritt Stiles will join us to talk about that. And there was another part in the Auditor General's report that talked about health care and the delivery of virtual health care. We're going to get into that with a member of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, I want to talk about uh, rapid transit. And uh, in we know that London City Council, of course, has asked their staff uh, to bring in a report about uh rapid transit and the costs and, and try to get some ideas and ballpark ideas as to what it's going to be. The costs are staggering. I mean, I think, I think we all know that going up front. So that's something they're going to have to deal with down the road. Hamilton City Council has been kicking this thing around for God knows how long now. And uh, I'm not so sure that we're any further ahead than we were. I know the, the advocates of LRT will say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we we're shovel ready. Uh, that could be. But uh, we're not sure who's going to pay for the shovel yet. And that seems to be the problem. And uh, yesterday's report from the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, uh, that focused on Hamilton's LIT project uh, was, a, well, uh, I guess kind of a damning report about how the wind government handled things. Uh, apparently they knew the numbers were much higher than a billion dollars, uh, but they didn't tell anybody, including Hamilton City Council, apparently. Uh, the estimate that the Ford government gave us last year, just about a year ago this weekend, matter of fact, when they canceled the LRT project, was $5.5 billion. And that outraged everybody. How could it possibly be that high? Well, the Auditor General uh, did some digging in this, and they found some confidential documents that had not been released and said, yeah, the 5.5 figure is uh, realistic. That's maybe the way things are going. Well, that caused a back and forth between the, the Premier and, of course, Del Duca, Stephen Del Duca, who is now the uh, opposition leader. And, uh, well, he had some things to say about the Premier's actions. He's being caught being reckless on this. He's being caught having no real plan for transit in Hamilton or for Hamiltonians. And so he's flailing, and he's lashing out at me, and he's talking about other people who are responsible for this. But Doug Ford is currently the Premier of Ontario, and the buck stops with him. Well, uh, the Premier had a response to the way Mr. Del Duca was characterizing things. We've been talking about the Hamilton LRT for God knows from the day we got into the office. And uh, the, the previous uh, Liberal government under Stephen Del Duca, the minister at the time, now, now the leader, was misleading all of Ontario when he said, no, no, it's not three point, uh, I think it's 3.6 billion. It, you know, it was only a billion. Well, now the Auditor General came out and confirmed the numbers we have said, the only difference between us and the Liberals, as soon as we found out we were transparent, compared to uh, Stephen Del Duca, they, they wanted to hide it and mislead the, the people of Hamilton. I, I love the people of Hamilton. I'm going to be transparent. One way or another, we're going to get the LRT built. We've committed a billion dollars. Uh, but how, how, can you, how can you trust Stephen Del Duca when he was totally dishonest and he knew about it the whole time? It wasn't the accurate figure. Now the truth has come out. And this is what I mean. The, the, the Auditor General's report, I, I, I love this sort of stuff because now I can dig deeper into it and uh, we'll have answers. 
Uh, that's the Premier Doug Ford. I don't recall him saying he loved the auditor's report last week when they were auditing some of the Ford government spending, but uh, we'll set that aside for the time being. So where are we on this project? I think, as I mentioned in my commentary at 8.10 this morning on CHML, I mean, the one thing is for sure, Hamilton has been duped and, and strung along by governments and by Metrolinks, too, by the way, who have to share some of the blame in the confusion that's going on here. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, has been following this story since day one and written extensively about it. Uh, and uh, John, he joins, John Best joins us, by the way, on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, John, it, this is kind of a kick in the, the pants, I guess, to the Wynn government, uh, but it really pretty much confirms something a lot of us knew all along. A billion dollars is not going to buy you an LRT that's going to run across town. No, that's right, Bill. And, and uh, you know, my guess is uh, it, she, she laid out a little bit of a timeline. Uh, so we went from the billion dollars to something approaching $3 billion dollars, and then uh, more money was uh, assigned to the project uh, just before the election and got it up into the high $3 billion area. So that, that information, Bill, would have been shared with the various consortia that were bidding on the project. And uh, no, nonetheless, uh, we did not get a bid from any of them. So even at the high $3 billion level, um, the market was saying, no, we don't think there's enough money there. Well, there's another element to this, too, that uh, Ms. Lissick mentioned in her report, uh, is that uh, according to her uh, report anyway, John, at least one of the potential bidders backed out and said, you guys just don't have your act together. And I'm talking about Metrolinx here because uh, the city, of course, is just standing by waiting for something to happen here. But uh, they, they did not. I mean, these are you know, people that have billions and billions of dollars to invest in a project like that, and they were not at all happy with the way this government and Metrolinx, to, to be sure, were handling this, and they just said, look, we're not going to get involved in a, in a clown show like this, so they, they left. You wonder how many other groups were like that. Well, uh, we what we do know is there never was a bid uh, put yeah. in. Now, I know uh, the, the, the project was put out for tender a second time after no bids came in the first time, and and the project was canceled before the market responded to that second uh, RFP. But um, if the amount of money that was being presented was uh, you know three and a three point seven or eight uh, billion, and and the real cost was uh, turns out to be over five billion, you can understand why the market simply didn't respond. The other thing is we, just this business about this. This is the only shovel ready project. I think we need to put that away uh, this project is nowhere near shovel ready uh, when the project was cancelled uh, it was cancelled and um, all the consortia that were looking at the project they disbanded uh, the way these projects work bill uh, it's not the same people uh, it's groups of companies with varying uh, level you know that, that bring something to the table in terms of expertise and skills so these consortiums form, uh, and then uh, when the project is canceled, as it was, they go on to other projects. So if this thing was greenlit tomorrow, uh, you'd have to go through the uh, request for qualification process, and you'd have to go through the RFP process. And, and the other thing is, uh, this project has not been designed. Uh, the, the way the uh, RFP was uh, issued, and I don't want to get too technical here, but the, the winning uh, consortium were, among other things, going to have to design the project. So there was a 30% kind of design that, that Metrolinx had put together. So this project would still have to be designed, 
there's no way that you would uh, get anything going in terms of a shovel in the ground for probably a couple of years uh, if this project was was approved tomorrow. Which so it's, it's not, not shovel it, ready. No, and it, that, that, it's not going to get approved tomorrow, but for sure. I mean, I, I understand your example, but uh, th- this is the frustration that I feel is, you know, the, the advocates are, are still maintaining that, you know, we're ready to go. As soon as we get the check from the from the provincial government, and they still think there's going to be something coming from the feds, uh, that they can get going on this. But there's still a lot of work to be done on this. Uh, and as we found out with the expressway, uh, the Red Hill Expressway, John, for listeners in, in London, of course, that's the expressway that runs across the south end of the city and then down into the Stony Creek area. Area. It took us 45 years to get that thing built uh, because of the, the political interference and the, the humming and hawing and the, the, the you know foot dragging that was done by various councils and various provincial governments. Are we heading for the same show here? Well, it, it's hard to say. You know, uh, council still has a role to play here, a, a very significant role. I mean, if we go back to the, the campaign when Ford got elected and some of his remarks right after the after the campaign and even after the project was canceled, uh, he, he has made it clear uh, repeatedly that there's $1 billion available in provincial dollars for Hamilton for transit. And uh, he, uh, when he was here two weeks ago and, and he was talking about this project, um, he made the point. He, he, he referenced council and he said, you know, I, I'd like to see the project built if you know, uh, if the mayor and council want it, you get the impression that uh, council could play a significant role here by uh, indicating how they want the money to be spent. Um, you know where I am on the on the thing. I I think we need to have transit all through the city. I think that's the best way to spend a billion dollars. And forget about going into debt for a uh, billion dollars or so that's the other point the premier uh, not yesterday but two weeks ago when he was in hamilton he he finally spit out the key line that the folks in hamilton are going to have to put up some money for this thing because the only way you can trigger the, the federal dollars is you get into that same queue that that kitchener and and ottawa got into which uh, there's a there's a program in place that'll trigger federal dollars but the municipality has to come up with about 27%. And if, we're, if we now are told the project is worth $5.5 billion, you're looking at uh, Hamilton assuming somewhere around a billion dollars in debt. I'm not sure uh, when I hear council who are, you know, they're talking about budget right now. And, I mean, they're paring tiny little things off the budget to try to get it down. Um, I'm not sure that, the, um, in fact, I'm fairly sure that the appetite is not there for uh, the city to take on that kind of debt. And um, I think if it comes down to that, you're going to hear that from council. Well, we already have, John. I mean, the council position officially, uh, and this goes back to the last council, but I've heard nothing different, is that not one red cent of taxpayers' money, Hamilton taxpayer money, is going to go into this project, into the capital cost. Uh, there seemed to be a little begrudging admission that, okay, maybe we're going to have to pay part of the operating costs. Uh, but they don't want to take this thing on from a financial standpoint. And, and I, I if if that's going to be the thing, this is a deal breaker. I mean, you know, the, the, every time they talk to the feds about this, the answer we always get back is, is well, we're interested, but we're waiting to see, you know, what the province is going to do. We already know what the province is going to do. There's a billion dollars. What are you going yeah, to do with it's it? It's a billion dollars, and, and uh, the, Mr. Ford reiterated that again yesterday, uh, you know, in the same breath that he said how he'd like to see the project uh, go forward. At the same time, he said there's a billion dollars there. 
So that number isn't getting any bigger. And uh, the only way this thing can work uh, from the standpoint of getting federal money involved is for the city to pony up not quite a third, but something just under a third. And uh, whether whether they get that money by issuing bonds or whether they borrow it from a pension fund, uh, it really doesn't matter. It's still debt that goes on the city's books. And that's debt that gets in the way of other borrowing. Uh, you know, right now we're sitting at, I think, somewhere around seven or $800 million in debt uh, for the city. Um, so you'd be more than doubling that for LRT. And, uh, you know, and then that takes away your ability, perhaps, to borrow for other needed infrastructure projects. So it's like having, you know, I got an 80000 mortgage on my house. Now it's 180000 Now you want to borrow more money for other projects. You, you you may find you have some trouble with that. Now, I, I, I don't have the, you know, like I say, there is no final design yet, so we, we're really speculating here. But if, if the, all that's going to happen here is the million dollars that Doug Ford has promised right now. Uh, first of all, we're not going from McMaster University in the West End all the way to Eastgate Square in the East End. That's not happening, not for a million bucks. Uh, I, I don't know if you could build a bike lane for a billion bucks for, for that, that kind of thing, the way costs have risen. It might get you from McMaster to downtown, but is that really an efficient way to spend a billion dollars? Is that really going to uh, enhance economic development like they've talked about, you know, having that line across the city? I, I, you know, no, it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't even get you to Dundurn Street. But, but the other problem, Bill, is uh, we've, we've assumed, uh, we've been told, we haven't assumed it, we've been kind of fed this, that... Uh, with LRT, you get this economic uplift. With BRT, apparently you get nothing. Um, now, when those kinds of assumptions were floating around, it was almost 10 years ago uh, when Metrolinx was first looking at the project. There has been so much bus rapid transit rolled out in the last 10 years that uh, I just looked at some, some numbers a week ago that said, essentially, with bus rapid transit, if it's a real bus rapid transit, you get roughly the same kind of economic uplift that you'd get from uh, LRT, except that it's a lot cheaper and you can build more of it for the same money. So, you know, uh, I, I think even the economic uplift uh, argument is uh, shaky. Well, let me ask you about something else about the report. I want to get back to that, if I could, uh, the Auditor General's report on this. Yeah. Uh, because uh, Bonnie Lissick was quite adamant about the fact that, uh, that the government and Metrolinx knew that these costs uh, were infl- had gone up, and they didn't tell anybody. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you know, they, okay, they quietly, as you say, tried to increase the budget, but that, you know, according to Ms. Lissick's numbers, uh, they, that wasn't even going to cover the cost in this. So I'm, I'm wondering, why the gamesmanship? Why the, the chicanery that's going on here? I mean, were they trying to placate somebody to... Uh, you know, there was an election coming up, and obviously, you know, they were looking for votes. Uh, was was this all smoke and mirrors just to try to say we're on your side when, in fact, they, they didn't have the cash to do this? I don't know. Uh, I don't know why it was handled this way, but it, I, I think it's uh, it's always very concerning when you're you're talking about uh, forming a partnership with a with a municipality and you don't share the information with their elected officials. Um, I have no idea why why it was handled that way, but uh, frankly, you get the feeling that there was a bit of... I've always felt the council was manipulated uh, in this project, that they were never given all the information they needed to make a, a proper decision. And certainly when they... The big vote that took place in April of 2017, uh, you, how can we forget that one where hundreds of people got up and spoke uh, before and uh, for and against the project... 
that, that was the, really the crucial meeting in terms of what's got us to this point. So those folks uh, around that table, I hope nobody knew, in a sense, because uh, that would mean that, uh, you know, some people knew and some people didn't. But the bottom line is they were voting on what they thought was a billion dollars, when in fact the cost of the project was, even at that point, uh, in the $3.5 billion range. How would council have voted if they'd understood that, you know, there was a, a, a strong likelihood that they were going to have to put in some money to make it work? There's another element to this, too, and I, I'm sure you heard Mr. Del Duca's comments. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, of course, is now the opposition leader, the Liberal Party leader, but he was mm-hmm. the transportation minister in the, uh, the Wynn government when this was made. Uh, and when they asked him about these inflated numbers and why the discrepancy, I mean, he explained it away, or tried to anyway, by saying, look, when governments make these announcements, it's all really, they only announce the, the construction costs. I still remember, I was on my show, John, when the premier said at McMaster University, when the, the, the get masses gathered there, a billion dollars to build and operate LRT. That was their phrase, build and operate, not just build. So, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of backtracking going on here. Yeah, I think that's pretty much revisionist history there. He also said, he also said that Hamilton was being singled out uh, vis-a-vis other communities that are looking at rapid transit. Um, I would say maybe, maybe Hamilton was singled out because this was never the right project for this community. You look at London, they're moving forward with uh, not only uh, bus rabbit transit, but uh, electric, uh, electrified uh, yep. system. Uh, you know, they might have looked like they were sort of trailing what was going on in Hamilton, but in some ways, I, I think the landscape around transit has changed so much, Bill. Which is uh, why London you know, the Council's other thing doing what they're doing. talked about is COVID, uh, what it's done to transit ridership right across North America. And, and some people are, are projecting that rush hour, as we know it, may never return because we've, we've learned uh, many uh, large numbers of people have learned that the, the kind of work they do, they can work remotely. Um, and, and so we may never see a full return to, you know, this, this influx, this uh, mass migration every morning into Toronto and uh, the reverse uh, every afternoon. Uh, so I think we we really have to take a look at transit uh, in a in a much more you know sort of holistic view and say you know what's the world really going to look like Hamilton all of its growth uh, major growth is going to take place above the escarpment yeah and uh, we need a, a to my mind we need a, and a couple of our industrial mall, uh, plazas are up there as well. I think we need a solution, I've always felt this, that, that serves the entire community, including where it may grow to uh, in the next 10 or 15 years. Well, this is one of the things we're going to have to look at. Well, i got to cut it off at this point. We're going to do some breaks here. But uh, I, I'm hoping this is going to get the debate going again and, and find out just exactly what's going to be happening. As always, John, thanks so much for the time and for your observations on this. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ford government has now passed a bill that could grant university status to a Christian school run by a very controversial supporter of Premier Doug Ford. Bill 213 contains a provision that allows Canada Christian College to grant arts and science degrees. Uh, the college president and evangelical pastor, Charles McVitie, has been a very outspoken Ford supporter. Uh, and, uh, well, he is uh, also the author of some very controversial comments. Uh, 
not everybody's happy with this legislation, to be sure. Uh, Merritt Stiles joins us. Uh, Merritt is the NDP education critic and the um, MPP for Davenport. Uh, Merritt, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Well, I wondered what was going to be the payback. I mean, invariably, when somebody throws their support behind a political leader and that leader becomes premier, uh, there's usually a favor in return. Um, was kind of surprised that this was the one, though. Uh, did this catch you guys off guard? Well, we were a bit surprised, uh, mostly because it was also hidden in another bill that was supposed to be about, you know, protecting small businesses uh, yeah. around um, around COVID-19. So kind of snuck it in there uh, was uh, legislation that would allow Charles McFeedy, um, his Canada Christian College, to become a university uh, and grant degrees. And... Um, Charles McVady and his, his, you know, he has been, as you mentioned, a, a close ally of Doug Ford. Uh, so it's not really surprising that Mr. Ford has decided to grant him this favor. But uh, but Mr. McVady has a really appalling record of Islamophobia and homophobia and transphobia and and uh, and we don't think that this was a great message and uh, certainly descend to a lot of Ontarians and it's not consistent with our values as Ontarians. Well, there's a couple of things I want to unpack here, and I, I want to get into the, the the essence of what you just said about uh, the college of Mr. McVitie. Uh, but what also troubles me uh, is the fact that this is another example of uh, throwing something into an omnibus bill and hoping that people don't read all the way through it. Uh, this is the same way the government introduced the legislation to basically destroy conservation authorities and the impact that they have. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that over the last couple of days on the program. Uh, and uh, and here's another example of it, too, where they just kind of tuck this in and say, well, who's going to notice? Uh, you know, th- this all business stuff is really good and really interesting, and we need to support that. But you can't support that unless you support this part of the bill, too. That's right. And it's kind of a game that I find government, you know, here, the Ford government certainly plays, which is to throw uh, something that's really distasteful into a bill that otherwise we might agree to. And so, uh, you know, there's no way we could support this bill with that included in it. And there's no way we could support a bill that, a budget bill that includes basically trashing our conservation authorities. So, so you know, this is a game that the, that the uh, Ford conservatives are playing. And uh, it's a really distasteful one. And I think it, it also undermines uh, the credibility of the government in the eyes of a lot of Ontarians. Yeah, and, you know, it's, I understand where they're coming from. This is a tool now they're going to come back and say, see, you didn't support the bill for small business. Well, it's because of this clause uh, that, that the Grants Canada Christian College, uh, the, the, the university status. Uh, and, and you're right, governments have done this in the past, and it's, it's abhorrent behavior. Uh, and I wish there was some way they could just say they're not going to do it. Every government, of course, in their election says we're not going to do this anymore, uh, and then they turn around and do it. So it's, it's really somewhat problematic. Uh, now, people, I'm sure, uh, Merritt, are aware of, of the name Charles McVitie. Uh, if they follow closely, I'm sure they know about some of his statements in the past. He has uh, been a controversial figure for quite some time. Uh, but more so, I think, in, in the last provincial election, uh, because of some of the people that were actually running for the progressive conservative leadership at the time, uh, not just Doug Ford, but some of the other candidates as well. Uh, and it, it was the old idea, okay, are they going to play to the hard right of the party? Uh, and as you know, during the debate that time, and even during the uh, ensuing provincial election, uh, there was a heavy-duty conversation about scrapping the sex education program in schools, uh, about a number of different things that would have changed the landscape and, and basically destroyed a lot of the progressive moves that have been made over the last 10 years. That's right. And, you know, I have to say, thank goodness for all of those people, especially the students, 
have stood up and and said we won't take this. We will we will vote you out down the road if you don't bring back our the the updated sex ed curriculum. So you know we can make change here. We can raise our voices and we can we can get them to turn things around. Um, what was interesting with this um, legislation is how the government really dug in uh, and refused to back away, even though uh, it was it was you know many many folks, including the National Council of Canadian Muslims and the Ontario Confederation of University Faculties and, and, and things like that spoke out against this legislation and it looks very it's very deeply unpopular it's not as I mentioned it's not just the transphobia and homophobia of Mr. McVeigh but it's also his anti-Muslim comments so you know at a time when we should be standing up to hate and where I think most Ontarians agree we, we should be standing up to hate and trying to do away with it everywhere um, this is has the potential to create um, a university degree system where 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 those kinds of views are rewarded, and we really can't let that happen. I mean, the government has passed this legislation, uh, but it's important we keep raising our voices because they could. There's still another part of the process left, um, and we want to make sure that they know that uh, that this was is is deeply unpopular with Ontarians. Maybe you could explain if you have it off the top of your fingers here exactly at the tip of your fingers. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Why? What's the advantage in going from college to university? Is is there a financial incentive there? Sure, there's financial incentive. They can presumably charge more. Uh, it, it gives a credibility and integrity to their to their college. Um, and right now they don't they don't have that, right? So it means he can charge more. It means he can he can he'll, it'll it's basically the golden goose egg uh, <laughs> that the Ford government has laid for Mr. McVeigh. So there's definitely financial issues here. And by the way, there's been some very troubling financial arrangements um, around Mr. McVeigh and this and his immediate family. Uh, they've we we found out that uh, they they'd taken eight hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars out of the college in the form of loans, uh, even while the school was in deficit. So there's some big questions as well around the integrity of this whole situation. Um, but but look, at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, this is a this is the kind of crass political favors that you know we used to think of as sort of a thing of the past, but it's very much present in Doug Ford, Ontario. Well, and we've seen this obviously with the uh, attempted appointment of a new OPP commissioner a couple of years ago, and and the kerfuffle that that started so much so that the, the, the Mr. Taverner and, and eventually even the premier backed away from that. Uh, I I don't get the sense that's going to happen here though. No, it's it very very much so. Uh, very dug in, um, Mr. Ford is very dug in. We are we are hoping that you know maybe uh, those those MPPs who we, we know that some of the conservative MPPs were divided on this issue. We hope that they will continue to stand up to him. But it is unfortunate that the legislation passed with all of you know with so many people saying that they wanted that, that they're against this kind of hate and discrimination. So I don't see them. I don't see him backing away right now, but there's still an opportunity. Uh, there's still another body that has to approve this. So hopefully uh, the government will, at some point, will back away and we will hear the last of Mr. McVeigh. Uh, maybe you could give us some insight into process here. Uh, is, is, is there never, I'm not an advisory board, is there not a vetting process uh, to, to determine whether or not the institution, whether it's this one or any other, uh, is, is qualified to be able to do this and, and worthy of this? And, and, and you know, do, they, do they look for skeletons in the closet? That, uh, and, and like you say, there's no shortage of them in this particular application. Uh, yet they seem, the government certainly overlooked that, but there doesn't seem to be any, any second uh, opinion or any second uh, assessment of what's going on. I, I understand what's going to happen here. Of course, when the bill passes out later on, uh, they, they said just say, but another provincial agency is going to vet that. Who are these people? and how independent are they? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there is a um, there is a, an authority uh, that that de- determines which institutions can um, be get granted a degree. Um, I think it's called the post secondary education. Um, thing. I can't remember the actual, oh, PCAB. It's called PCAB, Post-Secondary Education Quality Assessment Board. And the government talks a lot about this because the fact is that this this application by Mr. McVetty is in that process right now. What's confusing then is why not let them make that decision and then after that, if they say yes, we're going to grant him a degree, uh, degree granting, let's then you bring in the legislation. The government skipped over that set that step. Um, and, and that's pretty unusual. So that's why we are really, that was the first flag for us that there was a reason to be concerned here. Um, but, uh, and so we'll wait and see. Our hope is that that body will actually reject the application in the end. Does that ne- negate the, the, the legislation then? Does, does the bill die then? Um, it would, well, it, it, it would presumably die, but as we've seen, the government and Mr. Ford are really dug in, and I would not be surprised if they don't try to find some way around uh, around that uh, that body. Now, when that happens and this process moves on to that step where there's going to be this evaluation by this uh, provincial agency, uh, is that done behind closed doors? Is the public input allowed into this? Yeah, there, it's mostly closed doors, um, but there is some. There are some, I believe, um, opportunities for for applicants to to provide advice. Um, so you know, again, we'll see what happens there. Um, but again, like the the this is another example when the government brings in a big piece of legislation like this, and then they don't really they only hold a couple of rushed days of hearings. Uh, what we saw in those hearings was really upsetting. It was, um, it showed also it was, it became an opportunity for people who like to espouse hate to come before the committee and, and talk about their reasons why they are opposed to, um, to, uh, to Islam or to, to uh, gay and lesbian people or trans people. And, and it was really upsetting, uh, situations. So these kinds of conversations, it's not that we shouldn't, you know, we should try to hide these, these issues. We need to be aware of them. We need to fight it at every, every step of the way. But, but again, you know, even this conversation, even the fact that the government put it in this legislation, it kind of grants um, those views legitimacy. And that's, I think, what's mostly, you know, deeply concerning to me, that even, even if at the end of the day this, this, universe, this college is not able to become a university that grants degrees, um, we, we are still, we've still had this really upsetting moment where it's like Doug Ford has basically said, you know what, these are legitimate views. And i got to say, in, in, in Ontario and in Canada, those are hate-filled views. We, we do not agree that those are legitimate views. Well, this is what I found surprising, because I remember the comments from the candidate Ford and then eventually uh, the premier about sex education classes. And, and as you know, Merritt, you were in the legislature when this happened. Uh, they decided to, okay, we're going to get public input. And they, remember, they did an online survey. And overwhelmingly, I think it was like 78% or something like that of the people that, that logged on said, leave the curriculum the way it is. Don't touch it. We like the progressive curriculum. And they dismissed those results and said, well, they, you know, it was stacked. No, it wasn't. It was stacked with concerned parents is what it was. But they finally did acquiesce. And, and you know, they, were, they tweaked it a little bit. But it's essentially the same uh, curriculum that was in place uh, before they started complaining about it. Uh, but, but he's, as you mentioned, uh, digging his heels in on this one no matter what. It's like, don't blind me with the facts we're just going to go and do this 
Yeah, which is, I think, why we and others have, have pointed out that there's, there's a, this is a bit suspicious. And, and you're right, it, it, it smacks of some of the same issues we saw of him when he attempted to appoint his friend as the OPP commissioner. Uh, this is not just Doug Ford's personal playground, <laughs> you know, Ontario. We actually have rules and we, have, we, we expect more of our elected leaders. And one of the things we expect is that you're not giving political favors to people just because they backed you in, in, the, in your leadership race. So we, we need to make sure that there are these checks and balances in place. And, you know, as the role of the official opposition, um, we in the NDP have been, have been standing up, not just against these issues, you know, for example, this, the granting of um, degree status to Canada Christian College, but also because, because the, the process they're using, because these, these kinds of political favors, um, you know, it, it is so distasteful, and we need to do better than that. We, we know that Ontarians expect better than, than that um, from their government, and, and they're right, too. I was going to say when this, or if this legislation, it's going to pass. I mean, there's a majority government. We already know that, and it's going to get It through. has passed, actually. Yeah. It passed yeah. yesterday. And 52 um, Conservative MPPs voted in favor of it. And we, uh, and now you'll know that uh, the legislature right now, we can't all be here at the same time because exactly. we're trying to maintain our physical distance. So that was essentially all the government, you know, the government unanimously essentially <laughs> passing this legislation. So what message does that send to the people of Ontario, and specifically to, to some of the groups we've talked about here, to the LGBTQ community and the, the Islamic community, etc., uh, who are well aware of, of, of the, Mr. McVetty's reputation and, and, and some of the things that he's espoused? Well, it's very unfortunate, and I, I really hope that... Um, that uh, so, for example, uh, mosques, uh, a mosque in my community, you know, is regularly received threats. Um, are you know have to put in extra security. We know somebody was killed in a mosque not long ago in Ontario. We're we're very worried about that. We're very worried about you know the LGBTQ uh, folks who who are already always experiencing you know hate and discrimination and and so I I hope that those I hope that those folks know and continue to know that we um, in the opposition and that most Ontarians uh, do not agree with the perspective and the the values of of Charles McVady um, and we'll continue to stand up against that um, and I hope in the end that the government does do the right thing and that this this does not go forward. But with that in mind though, Merritt. Uh, the passage of this bill, as you say, unanimously by the, the Ford government, uh, does that validate the concerns and does that validate the statements uh, made by Mr. McVady and others? I'm afraid it, it does, right? It, it, it Unfortunately, I think that is the message that it sends, is that this is acceptable in in Ontario. And again, I don't think, though, that it's consistent by any means with, with Ontarians' values. I, I think there, there are very few people um, who agree with Mr. McVady. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, again, uh, the government and Mr. Ford, you know, we've seen, as you mentioned, that he has, uh, that he has, he has, has, bowed sometimes to interests that were um, that that supported him in his election um, but it's a terrible message to send to Ontarians to young people uh, to to look I mean I've heard nothing nothing but people saying how disgusted they are by this act and and they should be and I think that's truly where we're at in Ontario is that this is not consistent with where we are. But the concern about, you know, giving um, a, a, the Canada Christian College the ability to grant university degrees is that it just, it, it basically creates, you know, hate university. It, it allows them to continue to perpetuate those viewpoints, um, which I think are really harmful. 
Um, obviously. So, you know, at a time when we should be looking to stamp out hate in all its forms, this, this, this move by this government serves it up and, and, and actually says, you know what, you'll be rewarded for it. And that's very, very unfortunate. But I really do believe that we're better than that in Ontario. Well, it's it's somewhat concerning, I think. Uh, you know, let's face it. I mean, if somebody in a public system, either high school or elementary school, uh, started preaching some of the things that uh, that Mr. McVeigh has said in the past, I- I'm sure there'd be some not just an uproar, but I'm sure there'd be some pushback from boards of education and otherwise. Uh, but you know, when you walk through the gates of this institution, I guess it's it's okay. Well, you know, um, absolutely. You know, we would not stand for that, and we should not stand for that in any educational institution, in any in any institution. Period. Nowhere in our society should we stand for that. And and you would be in rightly so um, if you purported if you presented some of those perspectives in our schools. You would you would somebody would be we talking to you about it, right? You, you would there would be consequences. And there should be, um, and that is the difficulty here. So, so we will wait and see um, if he actually manages to pull this off. But uh, certainly, the government has has helped them out quite enormously. And even if even if they don't get to grant uh, a degree, I think that by doing this, um, the the government has uh, has legitimized this institution. Maybe they've they've made maybe they've helped to um, promote it a little bit, right? And then that's all money in the pocket of uh, Charles McFady and his family. Merritt Stiles, NDP education critic. Uh, Merritt, thanks as always for the time. I appreciate your input. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked in the first part of the program about uh, Bonnie Lissick's, uh, the Auditor General, that is, her report. Uh, it, we talked a lot, a lot about uh, rapid transit and, and mass transit because that was a focus of a couple of things that are happening in London and Hamilton right now. But the report that she released yesterday was far more expansive on a number of different things like elderly care, long-term care, and uh, and also uh, virtual care. Uh, Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Ontario's Auditor General says the process of integrating virtual care services with the province's health care system System has been slow. Bonnie Lissick wants that work to accelerate after the pandemic ends. It's one of 13 value for money audits presented in her annual report. Lissick also found that an increasing number of people living in retirement homes should instead be in long-term care because of their needs. Another audit found consumers are not adequately protected from high-pressure sales tactics for funeral services. And when it comes to Ontario's cannabis sales, Lissick notes most recreational pot can continues to be bought illegally. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. As I say, a lot of stuff covered there, a lot of stuff to unpack, but I want to zero in, if we could, uh, about the virtual care aspect of this, uh, because uh, coincidentally or not coincidentally, uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce policy brief called Realizing the Full Potential of Virtual Care in Ontario is going to be released in uh, just a couple of days. Joining us to talk about this is Ashley Challoner, who is the Ontario Chamber of Commerce VP in charge of policy. Ashley, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Before we get into the uh, meat and potatoes of this thing, I want to uh, first of all, I want to congratulate the chamber for being so proactive on some of the key issues that are going on. I know we uh, we talked uh, with Rocco Rossi just a few weeks ago, but the the report you did about women in the workplace and the impact that COVID has had on them, a, an issue that really needs a lot more attention. Uh, and I know it was very well received, and a, as will this one be, I think, as well, uh, because virtual care was something that we kind of hung our hat on to said this is really going to enhance uh, the, the 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 delivery of healthcare. Here in the province of Ontario, and uh, I, I don't know if it's too extreme uh, at this stage, actually, to say the government's dropped the ball on this, but they're certainly not moving as quickly as we wanted them to. 
No, they they are moving slowly, and uh, you know it's unfortunate we've uh, we've had we've been here before. Uh, back in 2003 with SARS, there were also similar temporary me- measures taken to enhance virtual care so that Ontarians could continue to access uh, care uh, while physically physically distancing. Uh, but the government decided to not make those changes permanent, and so now uh, you know we're facing COVID 19, and we've had to make those same temporary changes again. So what we're really trying to emphasize for the province is make these changes mandatory. It's clear it's necessary for the healthcare system. Well, and to your point, uh, if you, you know, to do that comparison between SARS and what we're going through now, uh, which so many people are doing these days, is not only necessary right now, it's, it's more practical now than it was even then. Absolutely. And we've seen that with the way that uh, Ontarians and and Canadians have taken to virtual care. Before the pandemic, it was a fairly small number of people who did their their health visits uh, virtually. Um, But uh, as of April of this year, 60% of Canadian health visits were virtual. So the the interest is there from patients uh, and they're driving it as well. Well, and the technology obviously has improved considerably. uh, And and we're used to it now. I mean, let's face it, a lot of these families are going to be doing Christmas virtually this year. Uh, so why not health care? And uh, I, I get the sense, and I'm eagerly waiting uh, your report on this, uh, that the, the medical profession themselves are, are a little frustrated by this because they see the advantages. Absolutely. You know, one of the, the big issues is billing codes. So, you know, a physician may want to see a patient virtually. It may be safer. It may make more sense to see a patient virtually. But if they don't have an appropriate billing code, then they can't charge the government and they they aren't adequately compensated. So the way that the system works now creates these kind of uh, inappropriate incentives that actually prevents physicians from treating patients the way that they want to be treated. And again, I want people to understand why the, the... the, the thing is not moving as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, the, you know, the immediate reaction is, oh, well, let's blame the government for this. And I, I get that, and there's a certain element of responsibility there. Uh, but this is the ministry that, that's in charge of this, and these are people that don't necessarily change with elections. Uh, they're, they're hardworking people. They're probably understaffed, just about every other department is. Uh, but you'd like to think that there'd be a, a zeal to try to get something like this done because the, the benefits to this are, are so obvious. Absolutely, but you know there are there are there are barriers. Uh, certainly, um, anytime you adopt a new technology, there's concerns about privacy. There's uh, difficulty uh, with, uh, with with change management or training people on how to use the technology. Another issue that that we point to though is is one of equity. So we know that Ontario has some real problems with high-speed broadband internet access. This has become a, a big issue, especially for small business and, and people who are trying to uh, make purchases online rather than go to, to physical stores. So this problem is also uh, a big problem in healthcare because if uh, you're able to, uh, you know, contact your physician using a messaging service or an app, that's great. But what if you don't have access to high-speed internet and so you can't access that technology? And this is true uh, in a lot of parts of the province, especially those more rural, more uh, northern or remote areas, certainly in Indigenous communities. So something that um, uh, you know the government is uh, is responsible for it goes outside of just the Ministry of Health. There's a lot of other competing factors that make it difficult to uh, to make virtual care the reality that it should be. It's points well taken. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's, it's we, we in southern Ontario here. I guess 
sort of take that for granted right now because uh, there's towers everywhere these days and you know we get upset if you know mm-hmm. things slow down by two seconds but if you're up in blind river or cobblecock or someplace like that first of all uh the hospital is probably 40 or 50 miles away depending on which community right. you're in uh so virtual medicine makes all kinds of sense but you're right they don't have the the infrastructure up there that to the point that they should anyway absolutely and and so that means that uh you know, it's harder for, for people in those regions to access care generally. And when we talk about a universal public health care system, that needs to be universal in terms of universal access as well. So, you know, we think that virtual care is a way of addressing some of these inequities, but certainly there are some barriers like broadband that uh, have to be dealt with first. Is, is it fair to assume here, Ashley, that, that everybody is on side with this, that they think this is the best way? It's, it's it's not to replace what we're doing, it's to enhance what we're doing and to modernize what we're doing. Exactly. That really needs to be emphasized. Virtual care is a complement to in-person care. It's not a replacement. There are all kinds of medical treatments that have to be done in person, um, but there are also um, plenty of uh, treatment interactions that can benefit from virtual care. You know, it's not just um, your annual checkup to the doctor. Say you're managing a chronic disease. If you're able to have a, a quicker, faster way to interact with your physician or your healthcare practitioner, uh, if they're able to, to track and monitor how you're doing, then your care is better, you're more likely to stay on your treatment pathway, and your practitioner is more likely to, to catch things before they become bigger issues that might send you to the hospital. So there's plenty of benefits for uh, the way that virtual care can enhance uh, in-person care. And it, your, the timing on this is, is really interesting, too, because of what we're going through with the pandemic right now. Uh, I mean, somebody who's you know feeling symptoms of COVID, may, you know, well, they don't really want to go to a doctor's office. Uh, and, the, and frankly, the doctor's office probably doesn't want them there. Uh, a, a virtual uh, conversation with the doctor with a description of that would be much more beneficial to everybody involved. I mean, if you're feeling symptoms like that, you really don't want to go out anyway. So this 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 is a tailor-made time for us to really uh, ramp up this, this, this kind of uh, health care delivery. Absolutely. And it's not just COVID-19. You know, the, the pandemic has unfortunately caused a huge backlog in treatments uh, across Ontario. Um, Between March and August alone this year, there were 13.3 million fewer patient services provided. So you can imagine how much worse the backlog is now that we're in the second wave. So if there's any way that virtual care can help mitigate that backlog, that's a benefit not only to the healthcare system, but to millions of people across Ontario. You mentioned billing, Ashley. That's an interesting side issue to this. That, well, maybe not a side issue to the physicians themselves. Uh, this is a different kind of care, a different level of care, and a different way of delivery of care. Uh, do they bill it in the same way, or has that even been determined yet? Uh, there's there's been uh, temporary billing codes implemented, um, but um, there's only three codes that have been, have been implemented, and the coding system is fairly uh, fairly complex. But suffice to say. Three temporary codes isn't enough, especially if we want to to really bring virtual care up to uh, to meet its potential into the system. So we're we're looking for the province to to create a framework for virtual care where they look at not only making these temporary codes permanent, but look at what other codes are needed to ensure that physicians are adequately compensated and that virtual care is properly used in the system. I, I'm just thinking if this 
gets off the ground to the extent that we'd like to see it get off the ground. Uh, it's, it's not going to make everything better here, but we, know, we already know about the stresses and strains on the system as well. Uh, you know, people being in hospitals who really shouldn't be in hospitals, people going to ER uh, who really don't need to be there and creating backlogs there. Uh, virtual care actually would be, well, part of the solution, not the solution, but certainly uh, a, a way to try to alleviate some of that stress, I would think. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and something else that people don't talk about enough in the context of virtual care is mental health care. So we've been hearing from experts that are concerned about a potential echo pandemic, uh, where after the pandemic is largely finished, uh, there's uh, going to be a second pandemic of mental health issues caused by what we, we all experienced this year. And so, you know, the Ontario government has made a number of investments lately into mental health. They recognize that that's especially needed this year. Um, but we think there's further opportunity for investment and using virtual care to ensure that everyone who needs mental health support can access them is absolutely critical as we enter recovery. There is a, a, a body in place, there is a system in place right now called the Telemedicine Network here in, a, in the province mm -hmm. of Ontario uh, that's been around for a while. Is is that the vehicle to build on to try to make this work? Um, potentially, but not necessarily. I, I mean, certainly... Um, there's different kinds of uh, what's called modalities of, of virtual care, and, uh, and that means technologies, but also different uh, systems and programs and approaches. So, you know, as part of the government looking to design a comprehensive framework for virtual care, we would expect them to look at uh, things like Telehealth Ontario and, and uh, figure out how best to build on them or incorporate them into, uh, you know, a larger network of virtual care supports. But this is the natural evolution of that, isn't it? I, for years now, and I know a lot of people have used uh, this system, the, the telehealth care. You know, the, you call a number and, and you get medical advice over the phone. Well, why not do it virtually? And, you know, it's, it's the next best step. Instead of just having a phone conversation with somebody, you've got a virtual discussion with somebody. You know, this goes back to uh, one of the barriers uh, that we discussed, broadband internet. Uh, you know, uh, if you don't have broadband access, you can still pick up the phone and uh, with a system like telehealth, talk to a nurse or, or talk to a healthcare practitioner. And it's really important that we keep that kind of infrastructure uh, for those who aren't able to, uh, to access uh, high-speed internet or, or access more sophisticated types of technology. The other reason for that is, of course, digital literacy. Not all Ontarians know how to properly and safely use things like an app or a, a smartphone uh, or even a, a computer. And so ensuring that uh, all Ontarians are able to equally access the system, be it in, in person or over the phone or, or with an app, uh, that really should be the goal. And how would you go about doing that? Education uh, for people that don't know much about these things uh, can be a rather uh, daunting task. Absolutely. I mean, right now, I think uh, it's it's important that the government actually goes out and understands what the the digital literacy is among Ontarians, so they can set a benchmark and, and then you know go from there. Uh, understand what uh, what work needs to be done and and you know which areas in which uh, or which areas uh, are are particularly difficult for Ontarians. You know, uh, uh, take a, a an understanding of their digital literacy uh, and then you know measure their uh, their uh, ability to. Um, 
to actually educate these people or 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 bring them up to speed. Um, you know, that's that's a big part of, of any sort of government uh, uh, program measure measurement and evaluation. And so we would expect uh, within any any sort of formal approach to virtual care that digital literacy. Uh, understanding uh, the level of liter- literacy and taking action to improve that literacy would be part of that larger framework uh, of virtual care. Ashley, how are we doing vis-a-vis other jurisdictions, other provinces? Are, 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 are they in the same boat as us? Are they ahead of us? Uh, did you have you got an assessment on what's gone on there? Uh, it really varies. Uh, you know, overall, uh, Canadian healthcare systems uh, aren't as advanced as other countries when it comes to incorporating uh, virtual care technologies. Uh, some of that comes from issues related to how we, we fund and structure the system. Uh, other countries are, are just better at us, uh, better than, than us at uh, incorporating innovation and managing the, the kind of change management that comes with any new technology. So there are some good examples from other countries to look at, but I think Canada has uh, a long way to go um, with respect to uh, really making the most of virtual care within all of our systems. I know this is a bit of a history lesson, but that's one of the barriers I think we had to overcome. I think for many, many years, we always just kind of prided ourselves that Canada has the best healthcare system in the world. And maybe we did at one time. It was going much more smoothly, especially compared to what was going on south of the border. Uh, but you're right. There are jurisdictions that we can learn from, uh, the Scandinavian countries, UK and others, uh, that have uh, made some pretty innovative moves in the last little while. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it would be very worthwhile for Canadians to stop only looking at the U.S. for comparison to our healthcare system, uh, looking at uh, Europe, the U.K., Australia. Uh, lots of really uh, fantastic things happening in those countries where they're incorporating technology and putting patients first, and we can learn from that. Does the federal government have a role to play here? Because as you say, this crosses lines. This is not just about healthcare; It's telecommunications and so many other aspects. Mm-hmm. I mean, a little bit. I, I think certainly in terms of uh, investments in broadband infrastructure, and, and we've seen uh, some uh, some announcements from the federal government uh, on that. And so, uh, any way that the feds and the provinces can work together to to make those investments a reality, to you know, to get shovels in the ground, so to speak, is is really important because I think that's going to unlock a lot of great things for Ontario, certainly in virtual care, but in many other ways as well. Now, my understanding is this is not uh, the report when it comes out on the 10th. It's not just going to be an analysis. You're, you're actually going to make some recommendations and suggestions that the government should uh, consider? Absolutely. So some of the things that, um, that I've already mentioned uh, with respect to updating the, uh, the fee codes, uh, developing a, a comprehensive framework for, for virtual care, uh, focusing on, on equity, so making sure that, uh, that all Ontarians are, are able to access virtual care uh, if need be. Um, but also, of course, ensuring that you know employers are are able to continue investing in uh, in virtual care as part of their benefits pra- uh, packages. Because I, I think for for many of us, uh, being able to very quickly uh, get in touch with our primary care physician or or some other healthcare uh, practitioner would make it a lot easier if we're ill and uh, and facing the prospect of time. Uh, of taking time off work. Uh, and so that could be a really good thing uh, for both employees and employers. Uh, when this is released on the 10th, I'm looking forward to, the, to reading this. Uh, I assume this will be on the Ontario Chamber webpage on the 10th? Yes, OCC.ca. Excellent stuff. Ashley, congratulations again on, on the great work on this. And uh, I know this hopefully is going to be a catalyst for further conversation on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you.
Take care. Ashley Challoner, of course, from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, the uh, Vice President of Policy. And we're looking forward to that report coming out in just a couple of days. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.